This is Kim Richmond, president of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I welcome you to another ASMAC podcast. What you're about to hear is a recording of one of our monthly luncheon presentations, recorded at Catalina's Jazz Club in Hollywood. These podcasts feature leading Hollywood composers, arrangers, orchestrators, and musicians talking about their lives in music. Okay, right now I want to uh, introduce our special guests, and they've been friends of mine for quite a while. It's uh, Monica Mancini and Greg Field. Hello. Don't, don't you get a mic? Hello. Come on, keep us going. Yeah. Well, first of all, uh, Monica and I are truly honored uh, to have been asked to be here. Uh, <clears throat> I actually go back. I actually joined ASMAT a very long time ago. I made a very short career attempt to be an arranger, uh, and I did all the copying. I still have the bump on my finger from trying to do ink copying on onion skin, and, and Kim helped me with some of those arrangements. This is back in the late 70s, actually. Um, anyway, we're so honored to be here. Honored, yes. Hello. <laughs> I need, a, I need um, questions and things of this nature. Unless you want me to just have at it. And, uh, no, well, let's start with how you, in fact, let's start with you. Okay. Uh, how you got into the business, how, what your father's influence on you had. And everybody knows who Monica is, right? Hank Mancini's daughter. Yes, yes. Well, yeah, I mean, Dad was um, a working guy at Universal Studios when he moved to L.A. back in the, I guess, in the 50s. And he was a contract arranger, composer at Universal. And he would be given from reels to do for films, and uh, as, as were another two or three composers. And then God only knows how it sounded like one movie when you had all these people doing the different reels. But so he was a working father, and my mom was a working singer, and she uh, used to go, well, this age group will probably know some of these things. She used to work with on the Tommy Martin show, on the uh, Red Skelton show, Dinah Shore show, all of the old variety shows that were very popular in the 50s and 60s and early 70s. And when school was out, I have a twin sister, Felice, and when we used to um, come home from school, mom would be in the studio working, and she would let us come with her to watch her work. And we, Felice and I used to sit there, and Mom was in the makeup chair, and then she had all these people fussing all over her and putting these fun clothes on. And I said, "That's what I want to do." <laughs> so I really followed her lead. I, I wanted to. I mean, this was when I was only, you know, maybe nine or ten when I saw this happening in front of me, and so that was kind of the path I chose. And I. Um, got involved in doing session work when I was about 14 and went on the road with my dad during the summers when he had uh, choirs that he would take out the Henry Mancini chorus. And, and um, then I started to contract his recording sessions. And I was a very happy um, session singer. I really didn't have any big aspirations of stardom and all of that. I was really kind of happy just going and hanging out with my singer friends and doing sessions and it was it was kind of fun and in uh, 94 when dad passed away uh, Bill Conti contacted me and asked if I wanted to when he got sick he was he did symphonies all over the world pops concerts all over the world and as many of you know they book those things out quite in advance and Bill Conti came and replaced dad in a lot of these conducting pops things 
I'm very articulate today, can you tell? <laughs> and so he called and asked if I wanted to do a tribute concert of dance music um, on stage with him at these, you know, the, I think the San Jose Symphony was the first one. We went all over the place. And I, I agreed to do it. And it was a huge learning curve for me. I, I really was into behind the scenes. And, and when I was kind of thrust out there into this big symphony world, it was kind of daunting. And I and I, I'm still to this day. Every time I do it, learning more and more and more. So I'm, a, I'm a clearly a work in progress. But but so I took a, I went out in the solo world because of this opportunity. You know, unfortunately, you know, Dad had to had to go for me to have had this opportunity to uh, to become the artist that I am today. And uh, so and here we are. And then I I went um, in 1997, I was offered a uh, tour in Japan uh, for one month multi-city tour, uh, the Henry Mann City Orchestra. They brought all these people over from the States and they wanted me to um, headline. And I did, and at that time I met a drummer that was on the gig, who is sitting here at the moment. But, um, so that's how that happened. Uh, and you can imagine my mother. I come home and I'm in love with a singer is in love with a drummer. I mean, is that just so cliche? It's so gross. My mother was like, anyway. And what did your dad used to say? Yeah, yeah, dad used to say, trumpet players and drummers, never. <laughs> so, that's dad. Arrangers are Yeah, arrangers, oh, arrangers are fine, but I didn't do that. <laughs> anyway, so that's kind of my little tale. And um, so Greg and I will be celebrating our 19th wedding anniversary in June. And so that worked out. I just want to ask a question, and this is something that I was just curious about. When you uh, were interested in getting into the business, or you were aware of it, which you mentioned when you were 9 or 10, whatever, was your father already famous? Was he already established in business? Uh, he, he was. He had just kind of, when I was becoming aware of this, he was, Peter Gunn had happened, and then, you know, Moon River happened, and then all hell broke loose, so that was, um, but I, I actually had, My mind doesn't go back that far, but what was the question? Just go back five seconds. Do you ever remember a time when he wasn't famous? Yes, well that was what I had started to say was when he was at Universal Studios, he was not famous, he was just one of the hired hands. And uh, so mom and dad were regular San Fernando Valley parents that went to work during the day and come home and have dinner. It was just very normal. I think that's why I am so normal. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, but he, he, you know, he, he got famous kind of when I was in kind of 11, 12, 13, 14 ish, is when that all kind of yeah. happened. So, That's great. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> what Monica didn't tell you is that when she was a session singer, she worked a lot with David Foster. She actually sang duets on the Michael Jackson history record. Pretty impressive. I have yet to hear it. <laughs> And then uh, in 1998, um, Warner Brothers offered her a record deal, and she had her own PBS special. And she's released, I think, five records now, five albums, a couple of Grammy nominations along the way. And, um, Thank you, dear. Absolutely. <laughs> My fan. Really? We spend a lot of, you know, we work.
work together as much as we can. I think there are only maybe three occasions in all the time we've been together when we have not gone out and worked together, when he hasn't played for me or conducted for me or something. So um, we kind of like it. Don't we, dear? Mostly, yes. <laughs> <laughs> we were in the studio one night, and we are doing your second record. And I had been working with Take Six, everybody knows Take Six. And Monica had this crazy idea. She said, why don't we do, we're gonna do a Johnny Mercer record. She said, why don't we do Accentuate the Positive? I'll sing five and six parts. We'll have Alvin, the, the bass singer, sing the bass part. And then Monica will sing all the other parts. And Mark Kibble, who does the arranging for Take Six, sent his arrangement and the fax machine starts firing up at page after page after page after page. And we're thinking, oh my God, this is going to take forever. Because you, you, the way they work is they double all their parts. So we've been working on this for about a week. And it's like 2 in the morning and we're down in the studio. And we're just both really pissed off at each other. And I finally turned to Monica and said, it's fucking accentuate the fucking positive. That's called record production. You know, uh, it did turn out, it turned out great. <laughs> Tell us about your beginning. Um, I grew up in the, in the East Bay of San Francisco, a little town called San Leandro. And um, I caught an amazingly lucky break as a kid. Um, I'd been playing drums for about a year. I was 10 years old. Played in a little rock and roll band, you know, in the fourth grade. And my parents would bring my brother and I down from the Bay Area to, uh, to Disneyland once a year. And you know how long ago this was that you, you would take two days driving down. You would stop at Anderson Split Pea or something and shut the door. Everybody remembers that. So this was 1966. And uh, there used to be a, a stage at, at uh, Disneyland called the Tomorrowland Stage. It's no longer there. It's a pretty big stage. And my parents would let my brother and I just sort of run around. And I'm standing there one after, or early evening, and there was a huge crowd gathered. And the curtains were closed. And I just stood there and wanted to see what was going to happen. And the curtains open up, and it's 1966, it's the Count Basie Orchestra with Sonny Payne playing drums. And I stood there, and for the first time, I had a physical reaction to music. I remember, like it was yesterday, the hair standing on the back of my neck, goosebumps. I thought, what the hell is this? So I asked my dad to buy every Count Basie record he could find. And I would come home as a 10 year old every day from school. And I would play along those records as best I could. And I was playing a little trumpet in it at that point still. And I could, in, within a couple of years, on most of those records, I could sing every saxophone part, every trumpet part. I could tell you when the trumpets opened up the vibrato. I, was, I could tell you when, the, when Sonny Payne or Harold Jones played two chord notes. I was really obsessed with Count Basie's band. <clears throat> and this went on for seven years. And I was a senior in high school. And Basie's band was playing at a theater, some of you may know it, it was called the Circle Star Theater. It was just south of San Francisco. It was one of those theaters in the round. And Basie and Ella were doing concerts there every night at 8 o'clock. And so I would buy a ticket, drive to the theater, stand outside the stage door, and wait for Basie's band bus to come up. And up they would come, they would get out. I knew, I recognized everybody, knew their history. And they would go in and I'd walk around and watch the concert and go home. So I did this Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Saturday, they had two concerts. They had an earlier one at 7 and one at 10. 
And my girlfriend and I were going to go to the 10 o'clock concert. And just coincidentally, that afternoon she called. She said, you know, I'm not feeling very good. Uh, I think I'm going to pass. And I thought, well, okay, I've got nothing to do. So I drive back to the theater, as an obsessed guy would. I bought my little ticket. And I'm standing outside the stage. And this particular night, didn't happen any other night, the band's getting off the bus. And there was a baritone saxophone player in the band that just left two years ago. His name is John Williams. And he sees me. And he said, you work here? I said, no. He said, well, what are you doing out here? And I said, I'm a drummer, and I'm just a huge fan of the band. And he says, oh, I'm John Williams. I said, yeah, I know. You're John Calvin Williams. You're from Greensboro. And you joined the band in 1968. And he was like, wow. He said, well, come on back. So I find myself in the green room in this theater, and there's Freddie Green, and Eddie Dr. Davis, and Grover Mitchell. I mean, it was incredible. So Basie hadn't shown up yet. Was Marshall there? No, Marshall had gone at that point. Uh, Bobby Plater was playing lead out. So <clears throat> I hang out with the guys for a minute. It's time for the concert to start. So the whole band assembles in the wings of this theater. And Basie comes up. He had gotten in my private car, and John said, what's your name? I said, Greg Field. He said, he said, Basie, this is Greg, and he's a drummer, and he's a big fan. And uh, I know some of the people in this room, like Bill Holman, knew Basie very well. And he was a really uh, amazing human being. He was just a really nice man. And he kind of recognized that I was this young kid and, and uh, excited. Talked to me for a couple minutes, and it's time for the band to get on stage. So the whole band walks out on stage. And they're about to introduce Basie. And the manager comes up and said, hey, Basie, Sonny Payne's not here. And Basie said, didn't you say you were a drummer? I said, yeah. He said, you want to play? I said, yeah. So I didn't have time to get nervous. I walked out on stage, and I sat down on Sonny Payne's drums. And I'm, I'm looking, and Al Gray is the trombone player right next to the drum set. And I turned to him, and I said, where's the music? And he said, well, we don't pull the music out. Payne knows all the music. Okay, and then I hear, ladies and gentlemen, Count Basie, he comes out and he sits down and he starts to play the blues. And I jump in and it was Spiky. I played that thing a thousand times. And so I'm playing along. And you know, a couple brass have a melody and goes to the solo section and it gets to that shout chorus. Ba -ba -da -da, right? I was ready. And I hit it as hard as I could, and that band played so loud, I didn't hear myself. I thought, man, and it was so easy to play that. So I ended up playing the whole concert. And at the end of it, Basie said, ladies and gentlemen, said, I just met this young man, and he just sat down and played with the band for the first time. And I thought I was on acid. <laughs> Holy shit. I mean, did that really happen? So I drove home. Well, the reason the pain was late is because he forgot there was an early concert. He showed up at 8 o'clock. And interesting, Ella was there, and the, she ended up hearing that this kid was playing drums, and Ella came out and stood in the wings. And I got to know her, and then I ended up, to make a long story longer, um, that's the band I wanted to get on. And so I moved to L.A., and took a very short-lived gig with the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra with Murray McEachern leading it. Some of you guys might remember Murray. Um, and then I auditioned for Ray Charles, and I spent a year with Ray. 
And then I got hired. Actually, I spent a little time with Harry James, and then um, Basie called in uh, early 1980, and I basically replaced Butch Miles, and I ended up spending a little over three years with Basie, and I think I did about a thousand concerts uh, all over the world, made a couple records, and uh, it was incredible. And then left, <clears throat> basically tried to move back to town, uh, tried to, was trying to get a recording session, I mean, recording career together, and then eloquent. So I spent a couple of years with Ella until um, she had a heart attack, unfortunately, on the road. And then I, by about 1989, I really moved back to LA and tried to, to uh, get in the recording business. And it was slow, but I was making my way. And I ended up doing a lot of interesting R&B records, which, and some of them pretty well known. Um, and that went on for a couple of years, and then um, Irv Copper died, and um, Frank Sinatra called, and I got Frank's gig, and I stayed with Frank from 1991 until the end. Uh, our last concert was in 1995. Did the duets records with him. Uh, met Phil Ramone for the first time, who became my dearest friend and mentor. And then around 1995, um, Concord Records came up for sale. And I had been working with Concord Records since I was a kid. Concord Records was started by a guy named Carl Jefferson, who was a Lincoln Mercury dealer in Concord, California, that used to sell records out of his dealership. That's where that started. So they had grown a little bit, went through a bankruptcy, and Norman Lear, who, who I had gotten to know, and another guy named Hal Gaven, and I bought the label in 1998, and we kept it until 2013, we did really well with it. And during that time, I started transitioning from drummer to producer. And now I spend 90% of, I still play drums on people's records, but 90% of the time I'm just I'm producing them. It's at my age, it's a nice transition. Uh, not having to tour, which is, I don't want to do that anymore, uh, or having to practice all the time. Anyways, that's my story. They brought some, they brought some uh, examples of, uh, on a CD of some of the music that they've been involved in, and we want to get into that, but I think it'd be a good time right now for any questions, because I bet you there's a bunch of questions out there, okay? So, let's have it. Mike has a question. I will pay you for that session. <laughs> You've got to give me some time. I wanted to just tell you, I still like the string arrangement you did for Ray. We're not going to talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> that ended my arranging career. Mike and I were making a record, I think around, God, 88 maybe, maybe a little bit later, with Ray Anthony. And I thought, wouldn't this one song be really nice for strings? So I, I had never taken any string writing. I went to Dick Grove and took arranging courses, but I wrote this thing, and Mike was in the session. Mike said, uh, hey, maybe I should rewrite some of this for you. <laughs> yeah, it was a disaster. Anyway, questions? Yes, Peter. So in the amazing Count Basie sitting in story, how old were you at that moment? I was 17. I was a senior in high school. I went back to my high school that well, that was on a Saturday. I went back to my high school on Monday, and I said, "You're not going to believe this. I played with Count Basie's band on Saturday night, and it was you're full of shit." <laughs> and then it turns out the lead trumpet player in our high school band was there. Uh, oh, you know the other thing was really cool. There was a photographer there to photograph the band for the San Francisco Chronicle, and he took twelve of the most beautiful pictures of that moment. And I don't believe in coincidence. I mean, I. I'm really convinced there's no such thing as coincidence. It's synchronicity. I put so much passion on it, those doors opened up. Uh, 
And he was wearing the same color suit as the band. By complete coincidence, yeah. I'm sure a gray suit. I hope all these guys are wearing gray suits. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I was 70. And then I, I would, whenever I would go to see Basie before he hired me, he'd always see me and say, there's the rest of the rhythm section. He was, just a, he was a great guy. The music that I brought today, you know, the arrangers that we love, that we've worked with, uh, except for Mike Lang, all wrote me this morning and said, no, I don't mean, I mean, among the arrangers that Monica and I love working with, which are Jorge Calandrelli, Pat Williams, Chris Walden, Che Che Alana, I'm going to probably leave somebody out. Each of them called this morning and said, ah, we can't be here. And I'm thinking, I brought all this music to play it. They're examples of their great writing. Well, then we're not going to play. We're not going to play. No. This <laughs> year, Mike Lang, we're going to play yours. Yeah. Um, we brought a, f a couple things that have come out in the past, and then I got a really great treat for you. Uh, but one, one statement. Uh, now, I know we, you skipped one thing, and that is before you met Monica, I know, you had a Basie alumni band here in town. Yes. I know that because I played with Dalton. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, and when Marshall was in town, and I got to play next to him, so that was awful nice. Oh, man. We played in a variety of places, yeah. mainly, what was the name of that place? Uh, Flamenco or uh, a club in Van Nuys Boulevard? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah, the, what, the former, former Carmel's, exactly. Um, the, you know, it's weird. It's, it's almost like that was another lifetime. I almost, it's hard to relate to having been on the road and, and done all that. You know, your careers move on, I guess. But uh, anyway, back to the, the arrangers. Uh, so we wanted to, we sat down and listened to some of the great arrangements that have been done for Monica um, and wanted to, to play a couple of ones that we really fell in love with and were great examples of, because uh, you, you know, you, you don't even have to say who they are, you'll know it when you hear it. Um, and then the Count Basie Orchestra right now is having their 80th birthday. And um, so they asked me to produce a record on them. And the truth is, the band does over 100 dates a year. The average stay on the band right now is about 12 years. Uh, a lot of those guys have been there since just after Basie died. The band sounds terrific. We had a Christmas record last year that went right to number one on Billboard Jazz and stayed there through the whole Christmas season. We had Johnny Mathis sing on it. It swings, swings great. So this 80th birthday album is coming out. We're about halfway through it. And we're celebrating different eras of the orchestra <clears throat> using guest artists, especially the singers. So we've got Kurt Elling that's going to handle some of the Basie Sinatra. Um, we've got Take Six doing Every Day I Have the Blues, all with the original arrangements. Um, and we've got Stevie Wonder, who is a huge fan of the Cal Basie band. And we did this, uh, I was telling Paul Hefty about this, we, we did a, a version of Little Darling, I mean, a version of My Sharia Moore that sounds much like the voicings and the style of Little Darling, and, and Stevie agreed to play on it, so we recorded that last week. So I, I've got an unmixed, uncomped version, but I think it'll be fun to hear it before we close it out. So. Um, what are we going to hear? Let's, so, let's hear. Give it a little context. How about Skylar? Uh, one of my, you know, I was going through a lot of my music to just kind of pick a couple of things that I want for you to hear. And one kind of thread that was running through there was that anytime I did just a piano vocal with very, maybe a string pad, just with very simple things that I did, Mike Lang played. And I would always, and he, he arranged them, and it was, 
he's kind of a vocalist dream. He listens, he, it's a duet. It is a total duet when I work with Mike, um, I, as opposed to some other piano players <laughs> that are on their own, whatever the hell they do. Anyway, no, but, but Mike is a, is a, a perfect economist, and um, we did a really cool thing together. We don't even know what I'm gonna play, but I'm, is that what we're gonna hear? Yeah, what track? So it's track number four. And before you play it, you know, I, I, at this point as a producer, I don't, I don't want to touch the Great American Songbook anymore. It's just, I'm bored out of my mind with it. It's been cut so many ways, and why revisit that? Um, but this was about, I guess about 15 years ago we did this, and it's Skylark. And Mike figured out a way to create a version of it that is, not because you're sitting here, Mike, but it's absolutely my favorite version. He found, he, he emotionally found a depth of it, uh, harmonically in this song that that, uh, that couple with Monica were incredible. So here it is. Track four. Uh, 
So this is really an eclectic record. Um, you know, I used to think in terms of uh, an album being sort of a cohesive story from top to bottom. But I started making records with Michael Bublé, and Michael Bublé tells a really interesting story about the first record that he had some success with, and they were all Frank Sinatra covers, virtually using, you know, the original arrangements. And he was having success in Japan, he was having success in Europe, but he was not getting any traction here. So on his second record, he wrote a pop song called Home, which exploded out. So his M.O. now is, he doesn't care if he has standards on the record and a pop track, and since we don't really think, in, you know, people under 30 really don't think in terms of albums, you know, you're buying singles, it's fine. So we just made this record, and it's stylistic, it's all over the place. But the, the arrangers in this room, uh, especially the ones that work with me, will appreciate this. There's a fantastic piano player named Shelley Berg. And Shelley Berg is also a fantastic arranger. He's a recording, he's a Concord music recording artist, Concord Records. And he's also the Dean of Music at the University of Miami. And he's got this really amazing career as an academic. But in the last four years, he's been nominated, nominated three times for arranging. He's really, in, at 61, he's figured some things out. So we were putting, we were putting the A&R together on this Clint Holmes record. And Clint and Shelly and I are just talking about songs. And Clint said, I'd love to, I'd love to record Maria. And Shelly said, oh, that's a great idea. And I said, I really hate that song. <laughs> and he's, and, but you know, it's one of those, it's a personal thing. I never liked it. I didn't relate to it. But if they want to do it, it's a popular song. Okay, we'll make it happen. So Shelley comes up with this arrangement. And I can't stand it. And it's just nothing's working. So Shelley and I were on the island of Mallorca about two years ago in the middle of the mountains. And we both like to drink bourbon. And it's about two in the morning, and we're sitting outside on this little deck. And we hadn't said anything for a few minutes. And I said, Shelley, I fucking hate the arrangement. I hate the song, I hate everything. And he said, well, what? I said, I don't know. I said, look, it's a completely black sky. I said, imagine he meets Maria and one star appears in the sky. And by the end of the arrangement, the entire sky is filled with stars. You know, we've been drinking, so he became much more poetic. And Shelley said, I got it. And he uncorked what I think is the best arrangement he's ever done. So this is this album came out about a month ago, so it's brand new. Um, and this is track nine. Just met a girl named Maria. 
Uh, it was, it was, he, he was in Las Vegas for a long time, but one of the biggest challenges on that record was to get the Las Vegas out of him, because he would become different people depending on the song. You know, if you, if you took Ray Charles' in studio, it didn't matter what he, what he was singing, he sounded like Ray Charles. But Clint became this different guy, and it took, they, we took almost two years making that record, and a year of it was spending on just finding out, you know, who he is. Uh, and then when we got it, it was smooth sailing, but uh, Shelly, you know, it's, I'm sure everybody feels this way as well, that, that anybody that's in the creative world, I'm, I do my best work when I get my ass kicked. When, you know, and I work with Arturo Sandoval, and, and he's got the biggest footprint right here. Um, and, but it's, it ultimately is the collaboration, it's that challenge. And Shelly was challenged. We could, have, we could have put the arrangement up that he did, it would have been fine, but fine doesn't get it. You know, you want that, and he's still hungry, and he still wants to do it. And I think all the arrangers that, that I'm forced up to work with feel the same way. You know, if you get tired, you're phoning it in, you know, I'm happy to stay up till four in the morning and tweak that vocal and get it just right. But um, anyway, so highly encourage you getting that record. It's called Rendezvous. And um, I'm really just proud of my, my great friend Shelly that he came up with that. Um, can we play something of you? How's our time? Ten minutes. Ten minutes, okay. So you know, we'll play a little bit of uh, um, My Sharia More. And uh, a quick story on this is that I'm producing an album of Arturo Sandoval with uh, all of these huge guest artists. It's Plaza Domingo, it's Josh Groban, and it's, it's Pharrell, and it's an amazing record. And Stevie agreed to do it. And we're, we started making this Basie record a few months ago. Uh, and the leader of the band, Scotty Barnard, said, let's do I should read more. It'd be a nice tune from the 60s to kind of represent that era of basically, you know, embracing popular music at the time. So the arranger, and I apologize, I don't know his name. He's an arranger out of New York. I know he works a lot with uh, Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. And the guy's really good. So he did it a little bit like Little Darwin. And uh, Scotty Barnard, the leader, said, man, you've got to get Stevie on this. And I said, it's impossible. I can't even get him on the phone. And finally, about two or three weeks ago, Stevie agreed to do Arturo's record. So we waited until Arturo was done. And I said, Stevie, I got a little treat for you. And I, I hit play, and he hears his song, played by Basie. And he was out of his mind excited. And I purposely left the solo section open. And we get to the solo section, and he just, he's loving it. Right? And then he says, man, some harmonica would be great there. I said, yeah, that's a hell of an idea. So two days later, he did it. And uh, I didn't tell Scotty. I did. This is a rough mix. It's unedited. It's uncomped. It's just the last take he did. And I sent it to Scotty and without telling him it was on there. And I think he had a heart attack. And I'll give you one of the, I promise to make this a great Stevie Wonder story. So 1982, we're playing at Radio City. With, uh, and it was a tribute to Basie called to, to Basie with Love, and it was Lena Horne, all these great artists, and Stevie Wonder. So we finished the gig, and they had an after party at, um, up at uh, Rainbow Room, and they had a little quartet playing, and I'm just sitting there, and this guy comes up to me, and he said, are you Greg? I said, yeah. He said, uh, Stevie would like to know if, if you'd be willing to, you and Freddie Green and Cleveland Eaton, the bass player, would you be willing to play with them, sit in on this band? I said, yeah. So Freddie and I and, uh, and Cleveland Eaton sit down and Stevie plays April in Paris on a harmonica and maybe one other thing the blues or something. 
So we finish, and Stevie comes up to me and he said, are you going to see Basie again soon? I said, yeah, we're leaving for Japan tomorrow. See him there. He said, I'd like you to give him my harmonica. And I said, wow, that's pretty cool. So we're on the plane the next day. Basie's sitting there. We all called him Chief. And I said, uh, Chief, I said, uh, Stevie Wonder wanted me to give you his harmonica. And Basie gets this grin on his face, and I hand it to him. And Basie looks at it, and he said, what does he want me to do with it? <laughs> yeah, I never told Stevie that. <laughs> anyway, Stevie's a big, you know, Stevie wrote that tune. There's Basie, Miller, Satchmo, and King of Wall he's, he's, he's a hardcore Basie fan. Um, so this was not a hard ask. So this is track, um, track one, number one. And again, unedited, unmixed, but I think you'll get the idea. No excuses. Huh? No excuses. No excuses. Oh no, I got plenty of excuses. <laughs>
Did you say that you didn't know who the arranger was? I don't. He's a he's a relatively young guy out of uh, out of New York, but he really understood it when we when we recorded that. As soon as I heard it, I thought, man, this guy should be writing the whole album. I mean, the guy is really, really good. And it's amazing. It still sounds like Basie, doesn't it? I mean, the, you know, it's interesting. The lead alto player's name is Marshall. It's Marshall McDonald. He's been there 20 years. And, but you know, they still understand that, that beautiful vibrato and the trumpets opening it up. And, um, and that's their new drummer. He's 23 years old. He's, he's the first guy since Basie died other than Butch Miles who came back, who is, really understands how to play drums in that band, but it's difficult. It's very different than what you expect. And I think this kid is going to be a star. Yeah. But how about something about, yeah, Dory. Great. Um, just as an executive in a record company, I kind of, I'm curious, I'm hearing about, basically, you guys keep on doing things, wonderful things, old school, and I mean it in the best way possible. But the industry is changing. Yeah. Uh, and what into what used to be record sales and revenue and things that kind of propelled, you know, mm -hmm. the, the, the creative process mm -hmm. from an executive. Dory um, uh, was asking about, you know, it's some of this, this music is certainly old school, but it still has a fan base. But in terms of sales, I just heard, I'm, I'm, I have a whole other life as a Latin pop music producer. Uh, and the head of Universal Latin told me the other day that their main source of revenue is YouTube. So more than streaming. So basically now the way that the, the labels are treating pop music is that they see it as where we would have had a single 20 years ago. Now there is a video. So they'll create a video around what they expect to be their, their single. Mm -hmm. And they'll promote it. And you know, I mean, I did a, a record with Alejandro Fernandez about two years, three years ago, Phil Ramon, and last time I checked, it had, with Christina Aguilera, it had 260 million views. And, you know, cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's where it's headed. Which is good, I mean, from what I can tell, I still stay in touch with the guys at Concord, and the good news for all of us is the record business is doing actually quite well. It's, it's turning a corner quickly, so. Yeah, it, it is very encouraging. Uh, not to get too deep in the weeds, but I know in 2013, Concord Records, across all the labels, 30% of their, their revenue was uh, streaming, and in 2014, it was 40%. And then you've got, you know, China opening up, and Europe opening up even more, and eventually India and Africa are going to open up. And in terms of streaming, just, it's just the sheer numbers are what's going to make up for the small payments. When I did my very first CD, I had asked Pat Williams because I knew him. He was a dear old family friend. In fact, he used to work for my dad in the 60s up at his office building on Sunset Boulevard. So I've known Pat since I was a kid. And we were familiar with him, and I thought, well, who the hell is going to arrange this record? And I gave a couple of songs to Pat, and I asked him to please do this record. He said he would do it if he could do the entire record. He didn't want to just do one or two. He wanted the whole thing. And I thought, and then I thought, oh, well, that's good. Okay, I, think. Well, I don't think about anything. Anyway, it, it gave it gave my first record this beautiful and elegance, which um, was just gorgeous, and also a point of view. And I think when you have the same arranger doing your entire project, it, it just adds that layer of it, it. I don't know. It just makes the whole thing sound like it was 
meant to be. Uh, so this is something Pat arranged for me. Second record. Uh huh? It was on the second record. Second record. And uh, it's called When October Goes. We do not have to play this through its entirety because it's 13 minutes. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> it's 26 minutes. Uh, oh, yes. I can't read Okay.
Any last questions? I think they know all about yes, this. Yes, sir. Did uh, Cal Basie ever pay you for that venture? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> I never thought about that. Actually, he, he actually died owing me $10. And we used to bet on Super Bowls. And I won one of the years I was with him. And he would always say, ah, you, you got changed for 100 And he knew I didn't have changed for 100 <laughs> So he went to his death. No, he didn't pay me for the game. <laughs> but he paid me a lot of other ways. Yeah. Anybody else? Um, before we call it a day, I just want to recognize some people that are here that you regulars may not know. Um, of course, you know Mike. Um, Dory Amrio, uh, an incredible guitarist, uh, producer, vocalist, neighbor. Um, also, I'm so proud. I'm sure everybody here knows Peter Boyer, but I, well, I guess last Saturday, two weeks, two Saturdays ago, um, Peter composed the probably the composition of a lifetime. Uh, he did this Ellis Island suite that was based around seven letters uh, of people that went through Ellis Island over a long period of time. And uh, <clears throat> PBS has just recorded it for great performances. So a huge congratulations, Peter. Yeah, the only orchestras that are going to be on great performances uh, next year are New York Philharmonic, Vienna Symphony, and the, uh, the uh, Pacific Symphony, which is where they did it. And we were there. It was absolutely incredible. And then also, two great friends that have just moved here by way of uh, Vienna, I mean Venice, Italy, to New York. And if you've been watching PBS over the last year and a half, her PBS special has aired almost a thousand times. And this is incredible. Giada Valenti. Who's just over here? And her husband, JJ Power, who is also a manager. We should get applause just for being manager and husband. Uh, and then a, a, a not so new friend, but new to LA, a great drummer and producer from Brazil. Um, and he's starting to make some heat here. This is Rodrigo Rios. One last thing. Um, one reason I, well, other than you know being a huge Sinatra fan, but one thing he always used to do in his performances is call out the arrangers, the writers and arrangers. He would he yeah. would highlight that, and I so appreciated that. And I just want to tell this group in particular that that I am indebted to all the arrangers, the beautiful arrangers that I've worked with over the years, and Patrick Williams for one, Mike Lang another, uh, John Charles who did my entire tour yeah. in 2010, God rest his soul, and George Calandrelli, uh, Chris Walden, the list does go on, but I, but those are like my core people and, and just want to, even though none of them showed up, but, and they're all working, so yeah, that's good. Really <laughs> anyway, we love them, we love what they do, and this organization is terrific. Kim, thank you. Thanks for inviting us to come back. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another ASMAC podcast. We welcome your feedback at asmac.org. This is Kim Richmond, president of ASMAC, and on behalf of the board, I would like to invite you to attend our events, including luncheons, masterclasses, 
First Wednesday's workshops, and our annual Golden Score Awards. For a complete list of our podcasts and videos, please visit our website at www.asmac.org. Many thanks to Chuck Fernandez for recording this talk. Editing was done by Chuck Fernandez and myself to prepare for broadcasts.